0: His was a life defined by acts of faith that would change the course of history. Join us as Pastor Chris Chadwick preaches from the Bible on Abraham and the difficult journey of faith. I apologize a little bit for my voice and I've tried to intentionally be standoffish today, not because I don't want to get to know you, but I've really been struggling with this summer flu. I I hate the flu whenever, but especially in the summertime. Um, I don't mind the flu if it's rainy and cold outside and all you want to do is sleep anyway, but this time of year all you want to do is be outside and you just kind of feel like garbage. So I certainly do apologize. We had a funeral service here Wednesday night for David Griffith, and um, I, after that, I just kind of went downhill, but I am happy to report, if you, if you didn't know this, that we had uh, some people get saved here in the service on Wednesday night, and then several people watching uh, via live stream in the Philippines that accepted Christ, so we rejoice in that as well, and we thank the Lord for that. <clears throat> Well, to our study this morning in Genesis chapter 18, um, our Sunday evening services, which are always different than our Sunday mornings, though we won't have one tonight, they're always different. We've been studying the life of Abraham, a series that we entitled Abraham, A Difficult Journey of Faith. You say, well, why do you mean a difficult journey of faith? Because in a world in which we live, living by faith is not easy. And most people describe Abraham's life like this, and I did a lot of research on this. And they'll say it like this, Abraham, the wonderful journey of faith, or the joyful journey of faith. And though that is absolutely true, living by faith is a wonderful joy, we ought not minimize the reality that living by faith can be very, very difficult. And Jesus even said that. He said, broad is the way that leads to destruction Narrow is the way that leads to life everlasting, and many there be, this is the Chadwick Street version, many find the broad way, few find the narrow way, and so the broad way, the life that is lived for self and by the flesh and and for our own self-indulgence is very, very common, and let's all be truthful, it's much easier to live in the flesh than it is by the spirit. Very few people have ever said, I really struggle doing what I want to do. Mm, I mean, I never have said that, and I know almost all of you, and I've never heard you say that. Your prayer requests are not, Pastor, please pray that I'd be more self-indulgent. My whole life is consumed only with Jesus. If that's you, please visit with me after service. We have a lot of things we need to talk about, primarily your propensity towards lying. Because living by faith is very, very difficult, and at times it can be. Well, Abraham is a man who has highs and he has lows. He does well, he does poorly, just like the rest of us. And so we've been studying Abraham's life. And I began to pray for Father's Day, Lord, what would you have me do? And I was going to continue our series in Romans, but then I read what our text in Romans deals with, and I could not figure out for the life of me how I could make application to Father's Day, knowing the next few verses in Romans. And so rather than doing that, we'll pick that back up next week we 're going to look at Genesis chapter eighteen, also find Hebrews chapter eleven, if you would, to set the stage just a bit um, chapter eighteen verses one to sixteen is really the miracle of birth and it is um, the story is being told of Abraham, who was one hundred years old, who had been promised of the Lord when he was seventy five that if that he was to leave the place where he lived, uh, which is a place called Haran. He was from a place called Ur of the Chaldees. He was to leave Haran, and he was to go into the promised land, what we call the promised land, the region of Palestine that is now Israel, parts of Jordan, and the like, that general region. And he was to, for lack of a better phrase, wander around for the rest of his life. Now, Abraham was one of the wealthiest men in the world, and God called him to leave everything and to wander in the wilderness, and then God was going to give him a son. Abraham, 75 years old, had no children, and in that culture, if you did not have children, you were considered to be, for lack of a better phrase, and not for a second trying to be unkind, you were considered to be, well, a failure. I'm not saying that's how we should think of it, but in that culture, that was the cultural idea, that that was the thought of the day. As wrong as it was, that was still the thought. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, wanted nothing more than to have children. And so God told them, go into the promised land, wander, and I'll give you an offspring. Well, they'd been there 25 years, and the Lord hadn't done anything. No children. Matter of fact, they tried to circumvent that through an Egyptian servant woman, and all that caused was a bunch of problems. Though she had a son, and Abraham had a son, it was not the promised. Ishmael was not the promised son of God that God would soon give. Well Genesis 18 is the Lord you see that in verse number 1 that's the Hebrew word Jehovah and we need to understand this this is what we call a christophany christophany is an old testament appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord appeared unto Abraham Jehovah appeared unto Abraham and so Jesus appears Jehovah in the old testament it's Jesus in the new testament they're the same person there aren't two gods Jehovah Jesus same person Jesus appears to Abraham in verses one, really, this whole chapter, one to thirty-three, and they have this conversation. Well, if we were to study verse twenty to thirty-three, Jesus is then letting Abraham know that he is going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities in that region. So this is a bitter, sweet text if there ever was. Maybe we should say it this way. It's a sweet, bitter text if there ever was. Sweet, you're gonna have a children. Bitter, a lot of people that you know are about to be, well, destroyed because of their egregious, unrepentant sin. And so it's a very, very challenging, if you will, passage of Scripture. Well, sandwiched between these two major accounts that have tremendous theological significance and are very, very helpful in our understanding of the character of God, as all the Bible is to help us understand the character of God, sandwiched between these two major accounts is a smaller yet very powerful thought that needs to be considered deeply if we're going to understand Abraham's life. And it is very helpful as we understand fatherhood. And we read about that in verses 17 and 19 where the scripture said, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Now here's our text. For I know him. That he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. Do you notice this morning the close relationship that God has with Abraham in the first part of the verse, where the scripture says, For I know him. For I know him. There's this idea in this text of scripture this morning that God knows Abraham and it's a closeness that is in some ways it's unparalleled. James chapter 2 verse number 23, the Bible refers to the, Abraham as the friend of God. He was called the friend of God. Though every relationship with God is unique and, and every person has a closeness with the Lord and closeness with the Lord is <clears throat> certainly not exclusive to any person. But Abraham seems to have had a relationship that is, is um, how do I say this, exemplary in its closeness. That he is an example of the kind of relationship we would strive for. You say, well, pastor, that's Abraham. I don't think I could ever have that kind of relationship. Well, Second Timothy chapter 2, verse number 19, the scripture says this, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. God desires to have, listen to me clearly, a close, intimate, personal relationship with every person in this room. No one in this room is excluded from that. He desires it so much that he sent his son from heaven to earth to die for the sin of mankind that you could have eternal life. And the greatest benefit of eternal life is truly is not not going to hell. The greatest benefit of eternal life is to have a relationship, a personal meaningful relationship with your creator, God. That's the greatest benefit of salvation. Not going to hell is cool too, don't get me wrong. But the greatest benefit is a relationship with the Lord. And you can have it. Abraham's closeness to the Lord is a great example and a great testimony of a man who lived by faith. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, if you would. Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bibles. In verse number eight, more is said about in this, what many people for decades have called the heroes of the faith chapter. It says in verse number eight, more is said about Abraham in this chapter about faith than any other single person. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whether he went. I just don't know what God wants me to do. Neither did Abraham. He left everything. He went. Notice that phrase. I love it. He went not knowing whether he went. What does that mean? He he went and he had no idea where he was going. Verse number 9. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Because she judged him faithful who had promised Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, as the sand which is by the seashore, innumerable. These all died in faith, not having received the promise, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in this earth. Here's what it's saying. Abraham went where God told him to go, even though he didn't know where it was. Abraham sojourned in the land of promise. His wife followed him. He looked for a city that had foundations. He was unaware that the city was going to be in heaven and that the city was just simply for his offspring. And then when he was past age and when his wife was way past age, to have children he was 100 his wife was 90 God gave them a son and that testimony caused them and helped them to be closer to Christ and therefore sprang verse 12 even of one to him as good as dead so many that the offspring of Abraham the Jews are as the stars in the sky innumerable and the sand which is by the seashore innumerable We dealt with this on Sunday night a while ago, that uh, you, they say you can count the grains of sand on the earth. I don't think they can. But what astronomers have said very clearly is there's no telling how many stars there are that God created. It is impossible to count the number of stars in the world. And God says, Abraham, you wanted an offspring. I gave you more than all the stars of the universe. Abraham was a man of faith who had a close relationship with the Lord. And go back to Genesis chapter 18. This is so important to understand. Verse number 19. For I know him. Now, it's important, listen to me, it is important that we learn everything we can about God, that we know him. But this is not Abraham talking about God. This is God talking about Abraham. Do you understand the difference? God is saying about Abraham, for I know him. That word know means knowledge based on experience. Here's the idea. When Abraham, here's what the word means when Abraham learned about God and learned new things about God, he would instill what he had learned to his children or in his children and those in his house. In other words, Abraham wasn't taking the knowledge he had gained about the Lord and hoarding it or dealing with it carelessly. When he learned something about the Lord, he was diligent. To pass that on to everyone around him. For I know him. Abraham, for the Bible students in here, we need to be careful of something. Abraham lived before the writing of the scripture. And God would reveal things to Abraham. The word reveal means to make known that which was unknown. God revealed things to Abraham that had not been known about him before we do not, listen to these words carefully, we do not have things revealed to us. We have things illuminated to us. Everything that can ever be known about God is found in his word, and it has already been known. It may not be known to us, We may not know everything and we don't know everything. There's a 100% guarantee of that. But when we learn something new, it is not that God is revealing to us something that was heretofore unknown or before unknown, absolutely not. God is illuminating something to us that people for generations, eons, centuries have known that we have now illuminated to us for the first time. So we need to be very, very careful because this word, I don't want somebody going out of here, let me tell you what God revealed to me. Well, if you're just messing up terms, that's one thing. But if you really think that God is showing you something that has never been shown before, we want to be very clear that we make this statement. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. We've got to be careful with that. Abraham was a man who, when he learned about God was not going to hoard things. In the New Testament, we have this concept revealed in two words for knowledge. There's more than two, but these two words convey it very clearly. There's the word gnosis, the Greek word gnosis, where we get our word knowledge. It means to have knowledge of or to know. You can know things. You can know about things. But then there's a Greek word that means much more than that that we see throughout the scripture, and it's the Greek word epignosis. It's the word gnosis with the prefix epi, and it means to have a thorough knowledge, to have discernment related to an issue. It's what we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse number 2, where the scripture says that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Jesus Christ. The assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement, the epignosis of the mystery. In other words, to the knowledge that has not simply been stated, but the knowledge that has been applied to one's life. There are things that we all know that we don't apply, right? Things that we know, things that we might have even a cursory knowledge of. For me, computers. I know what a computer is. Everybody in this room knows what a computer is. I know what a computer is. I know how to turn it on. I know how to select the programs that I want. All of my computers have an apple on the front of them because they seem to run better than the other ones. And, and they, I, I turn it on. I select the program. I type. But there's folks in our church who can talk to you for days, ad nauseum, and I don't mean that in a negative, about CPUs. If you don't know what that is, it's a central processing unit. If you don't know what that is, neither do I. Graphics card, hard drives, network cards, solid state hard drives, monitors, USB ports. Now I know what all those things are. But beyond saying I know what they are and the conceptually what they do, I have no knowledge at all. By the way, I don't want any knowledge of it either. I'm not opposed to you having knowledge about it. It's a good thing. I just don't know anything about it. There's software, there's operating systems, there's device drivers, I don't know what that is. Firmware, I don't know what that is, I think that's at a legal firm, I'm not sure. Program language translators, why do you type something in that needs to be translated later? Just end with that one. Utilities, all these software things I have. And some of you are like, Pastor's an idiot on computers. I absolutely am. And by the way, I plan on staying that way. It's, it's, it's willful ignorance. I, there's nothing that I can do. I don't know computers. Let me illustrate it this way. We could take a survey of people in the audience, and if we were to say, hey, what should you eat? Today is Father's Day. I'm going to eat at my sister's house and brother-in-law's house, and I could give you a list of everything to eat. I have gnosis. I could pass a nutrition class on what I'm supposed to eat, but I'm going to tell you today, I am not going to apply my knowledge to my food intake at all, at all. There's a difference between to know and to know. And God knew Abraham. God knew who he was. One is knowledge to know. The other is assimilated and applied. As we come to Abraham's life, we understand that he has a close relationship with the Lord. His relationship leads us to a deeper understanding of man's relationship with God. In truth, this passage helps us to understand not simply What does man think about God? But what does God know about man? More specifically, what kind of father did God know Abraham would be? For I know him. Dads, can I tell you, he knows you. If you're here and you're single, you're like, okay, or you don't have kids, like, good, I'm out of this message. I can, I can pack it in. I don't have to listen. I don't have kids yet. Uh, neither did Abraham. He didn't have kids yet either. So no one is freed this morning. No one gets to pack it in and cruise control. You say, well, it's going to be a long time. I'm, I'm 12, 13, 14 years old. I'm not going to have kids for a while. Well, God still knows you. And the principles are still to be applied to your life. And the truth is still supposed to be applied and assimilated to your life. Well, what did God know about Abraham? He knew firstly this morning that Abraham would direct his family to follow the Lord. That Abraham would direct his family to follow the Lord. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. This wasn't optional in Abraham's family. The word command here means to direct or to order. Abraham directed his family to follow the Lord. Abraham ordered, if you will, his family to follow the Lord. It was not an optional thing in Abraham's family or Abraham's life. They were directed, the word direct means to set in the right direction and to keep them going in that direction. Abraham set the direction for his family. How did he set it? He set them by doing it himself. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But Abraham directed his family to follow the Lord. And can I say very candidly that for far too many men, for far too many church members, for far too many people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, living for Christ is optional in their homes. And that's a shame. And that's a sin. God has not given you your children so that maybe they will follow Christ. God has not given you your children so they can make their own mind up when they get older. God has given you children because he wants you to raise a godly heritage for them or for him. Children are an heritage of the Lord. They're not an heritage of you. They are God's gift to you to manage and steward while they are on this earth. They are not yours. You and I do not own our children. They are the Lord's. And we are to set the direction for them. And Abraham wasn't ordering like a dictator. But rather... One who had set the end state. I want you to follow Christ. And no one in his family was exempt. Notice the verse. I know him that he will command direct order, set the end state for his children and his household. He had one son, Ishmael. Ishmael had been a son who uh, so far had followed the Lord. This was a predetermined decision by Abraham. Abraham. Abraham was not waiting to have kids before he determined. And and Abraham, though he had one son in Ishmael, was not the promised son. His wife Sarah was without the promised child yet. And, And Abraham was not waiting to have kids to determine if he was going to raise them for the Lord. The decision was already made. Abraham didn't have to think about the decision. I've said this before and I'll go to my grave saying it. Because I love you enough, I will say this very candidly. I think it's a problem when kids aren't sure if mom and dad are going to live for Christ. It breeds confusion to them. And you say, well, pastor, we screwed up before. What do we do now? We'll start living for Christ now. In our family, it was never a, a question. We never talked about whether or not we were going to church on Sunday. That was never an issue. Hey, are we going to church? Are we going to watch? uh, When I was a kid, we were Dallas Cowboy fans. Are we going to watch football? My dad got saved. We we started going to church and we stopped watching the Cowboys because Satan loves both of those events. But there was never a doubt that we were going to go to church. It was never a question on Saturday night. It wasn't like, hey, should we get our hiking stuff together or should we get our church clothes together? No, every Saturday night, church clothes came out. We were ready to go to church in the morning. We came. It was just expected of us. I've had people say to me to the point where I just, sometimes I almost don't know what to say, but I am a preacher, so things come to mind. Well, Pastor, I was forced to go to church when I was a kid, and I don't want to force my children to go. Well, you don't have to force them to go. Just tell them if they want to live in your house rent-free and eat your food, they have to come. You say, well, they're six years old. It's going to stink for them. It's not a force issue. It's an expectation. My daughter's 24. We're about to be 25. Our oldest daughter Judith, our youngest daughter Natalie's 22. She'll be 23 in October. I think twice we we said to them in their life, like, "Yeah, we're going to church." One time, I remember the church had sent uh, Debbie and I on a on a trip, and and the girls to Colorado, uh, this little fishing village in Colorado. And um, it was in the middle of nowhere. Like literally, if you found nowhere, you had to go further to find it. And uh, it was in Heaney, Colorado, and it was just in the middle of nowhere. And and, uh, we started looking for churches nearby. I thought for sure there'll be a church. We couldn't find a church anywhere. I'm calling friends. I know pastors all across the state of Colorado. Good men. Like, hey, do you know any church anywhere? Nobody knew any church. The closest church we could find was 70 miles away. You say, well, what did you do? Sunday morning, we woke up really early and we drove 70 miles to church. You said, well, couldn't you have just had church at your house? Yeah, we could have, I'm the pastor. Debbie would have been the deacon. Judith would have taken the offering. Natalie would have held the, con- you know, the played the piano or whatever. We could have done whatever we wanted to do, but I wanted my children to know that church wasn't a convenient opportunity. Church was a conviction for our family. And God was more important than vacation. And yeah, we're gonna go to church on Sunday. So we went to church on Sunday morning and we sat there. We didn't know anybody there. We sat through the service. We went to an amusement park in the afternoon. We went back to church on Sunday evening. We enjoyed the service there. We drove back in the dark to the little fishing village that we went to. I had people say, Well, why did you do that? Because there's a generation that is following me that is more important than my own personal convenience. And I am called to rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is not something that I simply preach. I want to live it in my life. So we're not skipping this. I know him. You say, well, I think your kids could live for Christ and not attend church. Well, pray tell, why did God then give us the church? And why did he command in Hebrews ten twenty five To not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. The closer we get to the Lord's return, the more we're supposed to be in church. And it seems like the closer we get to the Lord's return, people are going, I think we need less church. That, that can't, both can't be right. Both can't be right. And so much the more, as you see the day approaching. What day? The day of the Lord's soon return. Well, pastor, they've been saying he's going to return for thousands of years. Well, I'll tell you this. We're closer now than we were than when that was written. Well, how much closer? About 2,000 years. Well, I don't think he's ever going to come. No, no, no. He is going to come. And he's going to come, listen to me, Suddenly. In a time when you think not. Yep. His children and his household. Abraham would direct his family. God knew he'd direct his family to follow the Lord. And his house, those that lived with him. That's what it means, and his household after him. Like, like my wife and I have two wonderful young ladies who are renting rooms from us. They don't pay much and they really don't do anything for us. They're, they're here. Though one of them did buy me some gummy bears yesterday, so we're going to let her live for another month in our house. I'm joking, obviously. We love having them in our house. But it's not really optional if they come. You say, well, you, you can't make people who rent a room from you attend church. I, I don't have to make them. It's just understood. They're part of the household. This is what God, this, this is just, we don't see this example in Abraham's life. I mean, I know it's a little bit painful, and I know it requires a lot of selflessness, but this is what, this is what we're hearing from God about Abraham. This, the, listen, I'm not a big red-letter Bible guy. I don't like the words of Jesus in red. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with them. It's not a sin, because I just don't like them. You say, why don't you like them? Well, because I know that every word in the Scripture is really from Jesus, They're all God's word. And we know theoretically it's Jesus talking, but specifically this is Jesus talking to two angels about Abraham. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. And notice this, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. He'll command his children and his household after him. What does that mean? Well, point number two, Abraham led by example. Abraham led by example after him. They're going to simply follow his example. Dad, what example are you leaving for your family? What example are you leaving for your kids? Are you casual about your, what you're casual about, your children will be casual about. What you're passionate about, your children will be passionate about. What is Abraham passionate about? What's he exemplifying? Keeping the way of the Lord. That's what the scripture says, that they will keep the way of the Lord. I mean, there's tons of folks in Abraham's life that didn't keep the way of the Lord, and he had plenty of opportunities to walk away from the way of the Lord, but he was diligent to follow the way of the Lord. This is a huge testimony for his family. Men, is your wife spiritual leader in your home? Did she have to wake you up this morning and drag you out of bed and pull you from your online poker tournament to get you here? Seriously? Is your wife, the one on Saturday night, going, hey, honey, let's go to church tomorrow. Honey, let's go to church tomorrow. Hey, honey, come on, let's go to church tomorrow really? I'm not trying to be a punk this morning, but shouldn't we answer these questions in our own heart and life? Shouldn't we go, I'm going to raise my family for the Lord and we're going to follow the Lord. And I'm thankful for every strong woman who helps their husband raise their kids for Christ. But men, this is your responsibility, not your wife's. Your wife will, oh, those she'll stand at the judgment seat of Christ, no doubt about it, for the things done in her body just like you will. But we will stand before the Lord for how we raise our children for Christ. Is your wife having to ask you what you watch on TV, on your computer, and on your phone? Does your... Does your wife have to wonder if you're going to tithe or not? Has your wife watched you abuse the scripture? Say, so what do you mean abuse the scripture? I tire. As a matter of fact, I'm. I'm, I'm you, you, how many of you ever been around that grouchy old guy? I'm not old, but I'm getting a little bit grouchy <laughs> in this way. I tire of hearing men use the scripture to their own personal benefit. Like... If something goes awry in the family, they just simply tell their wife that, that she needs to submit, and they 're absolute jerks the whole time and don 't live for God. But the only scripture that they know is like ephesians chapter five twenty three wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the lord i mean is is that your standard and you, when your wife challenges you and questions you spiritually because you 've been a spiritual knucklehead for for days, weeks, months, or years. And your whole thought is just, well, hey, 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 you submit to me. I'm in charge around here. No, Abraham's going to lead his family after him. Young men, he's not waiting for her to be the spiritual leader. To our single young ladies, listen to every word about to come out of my mouth. You say, well, who's single if you're not married? You say, who's young? I'll let you define it. Anyone under Sarah's age, and she was 90. So today under 90 is young. Normally at Canyon Ridge, uh, 49 and under is young. Next year it'll be 50, but you, you can figure that out later. But to the young ladies of Canyon Ridge, would you please kick to the curb every dude who doesn't passionately live for Christ? Don't get involved with him, But, pastor. I mean, he's so cute. Eventually, he's going to look like Brother Bernie. I mean, no disrespect. If you don't know who Bernie is, he's the guy that led the singing. I remember Burns when he had a full head of hair. I mean, he. I mean, he could. He, you know, he was. He was. He's never yoked up, but he was fit, and now he works out really hard so he can eat more Skittles. But eventually, gravity affects us all, does it not? Every once in a while, i see pictures of my younger self, and I'm thinking, man, that dude was handsome. What happened? And then I remember I had children and Cheetos and cheeseburgers. Ladies, don't. Just 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 you say well pastor i don't know if if another relationship will come along i'm not this message is not about relationship i'm not talking about that we'll talk about it at another time and we have, and we will continue to do so. but can I tell you if a man doesn't live for God in the dating phase he's not going to live for God in the marriage phase, and if you're waiting for him to live for God to see he's probably not the man that God wants for you, and to our young men would I could I tell you this? Be a passionate follower of Christ. Jesus is not a add on Jesus is. Is everything? I asked some folks this week. What did you learn about from your dads? And I didn't get a chance to ask as many people as I wanted. I've been struggling with sickness and all that, but I asked a couple people, and I, I loved it because it was it was a little bit. Our two guys, Zane Garza from Ohio and Charlie Hughes from Indiana, both said work ethic. And I thought, yep, they're from the Midwest, farm boys, all of that, though ain't didn't grow up on a farm, it's that culture there, you just do your work, you keep your mouth shut, never smile, you move to the Midwest, you'll never have fun the rest of your life. I promise you that. Those people, we can tell the people in here from Ohio. You're the people that don't smile. Ohio, the upper, you know, East Coast. That's why we like people here from the South. They smile. People from the West Coast, we smile. Those, you know, people from the Northeast, they're just like, hmm, that was humor. Might be sin. You know, it's, (laughs) we can tell. We can tell. But our brothers from the Midwest, they work ethic. And I, I, I was not surprised. I was surprised that both of them said it almost the same way. I asked Bernie, I said, "Bern, tell me something about your dad. What your, would your dad teach you? This is Bernie's dad. He was a 1974 graduate of the Naval Academy. John Lund went on to be, a, got his degree in theology, was a huge help to his churches, and then became a doctor and OBGYN before he went home to be with the Lord. And uh, Burn's dad taught him this. This is what he said. Don't look to hang out with the cool kids. Don't live your life to fit in with the crowd. Live your life to fit in with people that you can influence for the cause of Christ and that just, listen to these words, so powerful. Just be a friend to people who need a friend. Powerful statement there. Don't, and great truth for every young person in this room, stop trying to fit in with the cool kids. Most of them are going to be unemployed by 24. And I know they have the latest, greatest video games. They're going to still be playing them when they're 24 too. Is it any wonder that Bernie Lund can minister to just about anyone? Well, how did he learn that? His dad taught him, and his dad led By example, I because she was in the office, I asked my wife, I said, Debbie, tell me about your dad. What is something that he taught you? She said, style. (laughs) Check that out. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) He was a dancer on the Hee (sighs) Haw (laughs) show. He wasn't. He wasn't. I'm kidding. I said, Deb, what's some things your, your dad taught you? Uh, she said, to love those who no one else would love. That's Debbie's younger sister. <sighs> no, that's Debbie. Isn't she so young? She was 13 when we got married. I'm <laughs> Mail-order bride right there, right there, brought her over. I don't know where she was from, but holy cow. I didn't realize how young you were until I just saw that picture. What were our parents thinking? Our message next Sunday will be, don't do anything my parents did. So, But know that my father-in-law would pick up widows for church when nobody else would. He would minister to them whatever his need, their needs were. He would take food to those who were indigent. He would care for people, minister to people, go to nursing homes. More than a few times I've been at my in-law's home and I've watched my father-in-law say, Oh, I got to go see Miss So-and-so. I got to go help uh, them uh, mow their lawn or do this or pick them up or take them this thing or give them a ride to the doctor, whatever the case may be. Is, is it any wonder without ever having a word set of instruction that Debbie finds her greatest joy in ministering to the needs of people? Why? Because your children will follow your example. If, if you're a jerk, don't be surprised when your kids are a jerk. If you're a gossip, don't be surprised when your kids are a gossip. If they hear you talking trash about people after church, on your way home, I mean, I hear people that come to church and then complain about it. I, I don't understand why you come. I mean, I really don't. I'm not trying to be unkind. Just for the life of me, I'm like, why would you come to something that you complain about? That's like me, I don't go to In-N-Out Burger. Why? It's nasty. Thank you, yes, godly people here at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. Now, you might like it, that's fine, it's not a spiritual issue, it's a sanity issue maybe, but not a spiritual issue, but I don't go on because I don't like it, and if I go, I'm not going to complain about it. Why? Because I chose to go. If I don't want to go, I'll eat something else. I'll complain about it all day long before I go, but not once I'm there. Why do you wh- why why would you gossip about something? I told the Great 30 service that um, I am I, um, in all the personality tests. I'm the weird one. All right, um, and uh, whatever the test is, I'm always the weird one. And I part of my weirdness is I constantly find ways to try to improve things. It's like, you know, M3, that commercial when we were kids growing up, we don't make things, we just make them better. And that was, I felt my life calling was to make everything better. And so wherever we would go, I could go to an amazing meal at a very expensive restaurant and I could find the one napkin that wasn't folded exactly perfect. And rather than focusing on the amazing meal or the wonderful service or the great time, I would just, all I could think about was, why is the napkin not folded perfectly? Why is the napkin not folded perfectly? And I began to see that attitude in my kid's life and God began to smite me because I was taking that which is positive and thinking I was a better dad for it I was creating a a family of critics in my life and I did so without ever telling them to do it I was just leading by example and so now I've been working for the last four hours to change (laughs) no for the last several years to change And I don't want my kids around critical people. I'm going to leave that by example. They're just going to follow you. So dad, said, if you're complaining about mom, don't be surprised when they complain about mom. And mom, if you're complaining about dad, don't be surprised when they complain about dad. I'm grieved when I see division in families. And kids know all about the problems. 12, 13, 14, 15 year old kid that can enumerate every disagreement that mom and dad have because mom and dad think it's their right to try to win this war over napkins. And every character flaw that every parent person has or each party has is brought to the table and one's trying to win the kids over this way and one's trying to win the kids over this way and what we have exemplified to our children is that the home is a place of war when it's supposed to be be a place of refuge and that mom's gonna fight with dad and dad's gonna fight with mom and we're just gonna fight, fight, fight and maybe have peace every once in a while and fight, fight, fight and maybe have peace every once in a while and that's the example that we are leaving to us our children. Is it any wonder that 85% of young people who grow up in conservative, orthodox Bible teaching churches walk away within two years of graduation never to return? And they raise their families to not know Christ. And then on our end, we hear the grandparents weeping because their grandchildren are lost without Christ and ostensibly will never come to Christ apart from a miracle because of now generations of flawed direction and bad spiritual examples. Now, let me address you young people, regardless of what your parents do, you have no right to walk away from the Lord. God loves you. He cares for you. We have people in this room who have never met their dads. We have people in this room who come from extremely dysfunctional families and God is closer to them than you could ever imagine. He is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. If you put your faith and trust in him, he will be there. He will encourage you. He will be there. He will never leave you. He will be there. He will support you. He will give his church to you. He's given his church to you to encourage, equip, and hold you accountable. I mean, It's awesome all that he has done. Do not think for a moment that you have excuse to walk away from the Lord. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones who said, we should give our children the impression that the most wonderful thing in the world is Christianity and there is nothing in life comparable to being a Christian. There is nothing in life comparable to being a Christian. I wonder if we took a poll of dads of your kids. And you already know the answer. I don't know the answer, but you know the answer. Hey, what's the most important thing in your dad's life? The Navy. Hey, he's gray and underway. Go Navy, beat Army. My dad loves the Navy so much he got a goat tattooed on his chest. Whatever. Navy. Oh, making money. Boy, my dad's all about work and business, and that's what I want in my life. I want to make more money than my dad. Sports, oh, we have not yet begun to see how amazing it's going to be when I take my dad to the Super Bowl. It's going to be awesome. All about sports. Or would your kids say, yeah, my dad loves the Navy or he loves his work. He does good there. We enjoy watching sports together. None of those things are bad. Don't get me wrong. But what my dad is passionate about is about the Lord Jesus Christ. My dad's desire is that we would live for Christ. Well, Pastor, why would we do all that? Verse number 19 tells us, they shall keep the way of the Lord To do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abram that which he hath spoken of him. Obedience is the objective. Justice just simply means this submissively surrendering to God. I can speak today, I'm sorry. Submissively surrendering to God's revealed will in his word. Submissively surrendering to God's revealed will in his word. Human judges are supposed to imitate the divine judge. God is righteous, and God is just, and so we are called to do that. There's a lot of talk today about justice, and that's a wonderful thing. I want to live in a just world, but I want to make sure that we define justice appropriately, and justice is imitating the divine judge. And I'm for justice 100%. Judgment, justice and judgment. Judgment is a legal decision. It's a legal case or claim that ends with the proper outcome. Not only do we decide things that are based on God's justice, that which is divinely revealed in his word, but the outcome of that justice is a biblical judgment that has the proper outcome. That's what Abraham is talking about. That obedience is the objective. It's kind of what Paul said to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 4 You fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The nurture and admonition bring them up as the Lord would have and in the admonition of the Lord, so that the end state of what they have is what God desires for your kids' lives. Be a dad whose example is that. Here's the whole idea of this passage. Be a dad who is an example of being a passionate follower of Christ. Be a passionate follower of Christ. You see, our world is changing at a rate faster than we've ever seen before. When I first became a youth pastor in 96, boy, that doesn't seem that long ago to me, but it really was a long time ago. When I first became a youth pastor, well, actually, I became a youth pastor in 94, but moved to Texas in 96. So let's say 94. When I became a youth pastor in 94, it was kind of the pre-internet days. I mean, the internet wasn't around, don't get me wrong, but it wasn't like it is today. It was, you know, everything was a blue screen and, and all of that. It was just very, very different. And even back in 1994, you know, things would come out and become somewhat popular in the world and, and we could take our time to study it and to learn it and to have a, a prepared means of trying to help people not fall prey to the tricks and the, the devices of Satan. Well, 2021, I mean, there are trends that happen in a moment's notice I feel like I live the majority of my life behind the curve. And I watch YouTube. And I've got young women live in my house and two young daughters. And uh, like, hey, tell me the new stuff that's going on and trying to be prepared and trying to stay up. And invariably, I get caught off guard. And there have been more than a few times that I've said to myself, why was I born now? I mean, why couldn't my parents have had me like in the 30s? I mean, they weren't alive, so that'd have been weird. But sometimes I feel like it would have been easier at a different time. But the truth of the matter is this: that God knew when I would be born, and God has enables me to accomplish what He desires me to accomplish in this sin-cursed world. You say, "Well, Pastor, it's harder now than it's ever been." I don't know. We've never lived in another time. And I'm not sure that in another time it was easier. It was definitely different. I'm not sure it was easier. Maybe it was. I can't say it was or wasn't. I wasn't there. But I will tell you this, that his grace that enabled people, young, enabled men to raise their children for Christ in those times is the same grace that enables us to raise our children for him in this time. And, and, and we have always needed his grace and, and his abundant grace. And we can do it. At this time in this age, and it's not unique to the Lord, and He knows what we need. During the War of 1812, General Andrew Jackson marched more than 2,000 miles from Tennessee to New Orleans to fight the British in New Orleans. And with bravado, they fought that decisive battle in New Orleans that would basically seal the fate of the war. And the colonies, the Americans won again. We beat the British 2-0. and They've just given up. If America is not your homeland, you don't understand how happy we are anytime we can beat the British. But they were happy. The fighting took its toll on Jackson's troops. But sickness was the greatest enemy they faced. Deadly sickness went through the ranks. 150 soldiers became gravely ill after they won, and 56 of them couldn't even stand. They were so sick they could not stand and march back home. Dr. Samuel Hodge, who was the company doctor, asked Jackson, General Jackson what he wanted him to do. And General Jackson barked back, not with kindness. He said, to do, sir. Yeah, what do you want me to do? And Jackson said, you are to leave no man on the ground. It wasn't an official code of conduct yet, but Jackson embodied the motto, no man left behind. Andrew Jackson ordered his officers, and they weren't too excited about it. He ordered his officers to give up their horses so that those who were sick could ride back home. And he was the first to do it. And he marched 531 miles on foot. Somewhere between New Orleans and Nashville, Tennessee, where the troop or the command was housed, he earned the nickname Old Hickory, the same name under which he would Later, run for president. Before winning the White House, the seventh president of the United States is alleged to have fought more than 13 duels. That's where two guys try to shoot each other, which explains his 37 pistols in his gun collection. I'm not advocating for dueling again, but it does reveal something about his character. He wasn't one to shrink from a fight especially when honor was at stake. Jackson said this, I was born for the storm and the calm doesn't suit me. And men, I would tell you, you were born for this. You were born by God, put in this time, in this age. Yes, it is difficult, and yes, it feels like a battle, and yes, it feels like a war, and, and we're threatened with capsizing, and seems like it's very, very difficult, and we're facing storms at every turn, but you were born for this. God puts you here. God is going to enable you. God is going to make your path straight, if you will let him In this time, fight the good fight of faith. It may not be easy. There may be storms at every turn. You may have to walk away from some friendships. You may have to make difficult decisions. Your children aren't going to like every decision that you make. That's okay. Fight the fight of faith. And by the grace of God... You, like Abraham, will accomplish what God desires in your life. It all starts with salvation. If you're here and you don't know Christ, come to Jesus today. Repent of your sin and trust him. If you're here and you know Christ, live for him today. Determine today. We're not going to be haphazard about raising our children for the Lord. We're not going to be haphazard about raising our grandchildren for the Lord. I'm thankful that Judith and Natalie know that their Nini and papa and their grandmother and father are going to be in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. They're going to talk about the things of God. They're going to pray together. You say, well, do they ever have any fun? Have you met my parents? There's nothing fun about them. They've never been fun. No, I'm kidding. Of course they're going to have fun. But the greatest thing they need is not fun. The greatest thing they need is an example to live for Christ. And our prayer is that you'll make that decision today. Today. Oh, there's conviction in the room. Some of you have to make a choice. God's drawing me to make this decision. The question is, will you make it? In just a moment, the altars will be open. Dad's probably high time for you to hit it. Man up and put God first in your life and in your family. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, we'll have counselors at the front that can take the Bible and show you how heaven can be your home. And we want you to know heaven can be your home. And then once you know that heaven's your home, we want you to know that God will enable you to live for him and raise your family for him. And if you're single, you need to commit today. God, I'm going to live for you. I'm picking a spouse that's living for you, and we're living for you the rest of our lives. And maybe you just need strength today. God, I'm weary. I've been in this fight for a while, and things at home aren't good. Come to him today. Ask for strength. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.